You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Lisa Poteet. In 2022, more than 2.7 million people crossed into the United States, more than double the previous record, which hovered around 1 million. Depending upon your news outlet of choice, this was either just to be expected or alternatively an Armageddon situation that would destabilize the United States and result in massive job loss for those lower paid workers who often see competition in migrants who will work for less. And can immigration ever be meaningfully managed when the U.S. sits so close to numerous countries that are not functioning democracies and that are likely to result in displacement because of regional conflicts, criminal gangs, severe weather, and other effects of climate change? Is massive immigration a real national security concern? And if it is, why hasn't Congress worked to correct the U.S. immigration laws to manage the problem? Or... Is immigration in waves just something to be expected and familiar in the history of our deliciously diverse country? We thought we'd take in a lot of different views on this topic. And tonight, we're going to start with a conversation with Elaine Duke. Elaine Duke was the Deputy Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, which we're going to refer to as DHS, from April of 2017 to April of 2018. She also served as the acting director of Homeland Security from July of 2017 to December of 2017, and she served as DHS's Senate-confirmed Undersecretary for Management from 2008 to 2010. Now, as Undersecretary, she was responsible for the department's management functions and its corresponding $47 billion budget. Prior to her appointment, she served as the department's Deputy Undersecretary for Management and Chief Procurement Officer, and she's also served as Deputy Assistant Administrator for Acquisition, and Deputy Secretary Duke has served as a member of the Homeland Security Advisory Council and as a Strategic Advisor to the Government Technology and Services Coalition. That's a lot. Elaine, thanks for coming in tonight. Thank you. It's good to be here. Let's talk a little bit about how DHS funds border protection. Let's start with kind of the basics. Okay. Border protection is funded under several of the pieces of DHS. Number one is Customs and Border Protection, CBP. Two big accounts in that one, operations and support that pays for all the men and women at the border and some other expenses. That interestingly has been relatively flat over the years. Then there's an interesting account that's procurement construction improvements. That's where the flow of money has gone up and down over the years. Wall, no wall, equipment, no equipment. Also funded through ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and bits and pieces of DHS. You know, a lot of what we hear when people are running for office, and we hear all sorts of very simple and sometimes harebrained things, but let's talk about one. Generally, what we hear is simple messages that are like this. More money needs to be used to fund border security. Now, let me ask you, as a practical matter, does that make sense? Or is that really a Sisyphusian effort that just squanders taxpayer dollars treating a symptom and not really the cause of massive flows of immigration? Well, the answer to this question is yes and no. I'll start with the yes. We do need money for border security. It is a critical mission set in protecting our homeland. 
has to be done. It can change with policies, it can change with administrations, but we do have a border and we are a nation and it needs to be protected. And the cost is high. What doesn't make sense is when we take the politicalness of border security and spend money on areas that may or may not actually increase our border security. And I think that's what we're seeing to a certain degree. And that's the part where I say, no, we should not be paying for border security for political purposes rather than actual security. For instance, you know, the wall we can talk about. Certain areas of the southwest border are amazingly protected by fence or wall. Very helpful. And our border patrol will tell us where and where not. But putting wall where our mission personnel tell us we don't need it, that's a waste of money. Similarly, some of the swings we've seen going back and forth driven by politicals where it really doesn't increase the security of our homeland, these wild swings. But there are places where we need it, like the increased spending on sufficient housing for persons going through the process, especially unaccompanied children. Those are things that we have to spend money on. But I think we need to be a little more judicious of how. Yes. And that's an interesting response because it sounds acutely practical. And it is a tragedy when we end up with unaccompanied children because we know that they're probably forfeiting any kind of a meaningful primary education and extremely dangerous. It's sad, actually. But when you're looking at the budget for DHS, how are decisions made about where to apply these appropriations and how much does Congress sort of get in there and start nitpicking in order to sort of please sometimes very narrow constituencies and not always people familiar with the things that you understand? As you probably know, DHS has more congressional committees with oversight on the authorization and some input on the appropriation side than any other department. It's over 90 because when DHS was created, no congressional committee gave up its authority. And so you see quite a bit of conflicting guidance given to DHS from its congressional members. And so that's really a challenge because you're not really working for four committees, two approps and two authorizing committees. So that's a challenge from that side. The other challenge is many of DHS's missions are very controversial. There are still people talking about TSA, Transportation Security Administration, whether it should have been federalized at all. That's always a controversy. Let's not fund it so it goes back to being private. There's still talk about FEMA and whether FEMA should be part of the department. And so those are there that will make the decision by saying, well, we won't fund it or we'll do something else along there. And then you throw in the many other important missions like Secret Service, Coast Guard, the three immigration agencies, as I said, FEMA, and you really have a diverse set of missions. So being the practical person, you pegged me right off the bat. When I looked at spending the budget, it's how will that incremental dollar buy down security? There's a couple challenges with that. One is when you look across that huge mission set, air security, border security, presidential protection, disaster recovery, response and relief, 
there's always more urgent, truly urgent homeland security issues than the dollar. So it really is trying to just really keep the most urgent priorities funded. The other thing that's important and something we're not doing really well is taking that lateral look. So when it comes to immigration, particularly, DHS isn't the only one involved in immigration. For instance, Department of Justice has a huge role with immigration judges. And when the Congress funds It doesn't fund across the system. So currently we have a huge shortage of immigration judges. That, no matter what funding you give to DHS, that causes problems in the system. And so we're not doing a functional analysis across agencies to say, how do we process and accomplish certain missions? We're doing it by department and it's really causing a suboptimization of our funds. Okay, well, that's obviously a concern. And and I do want to say something, And having to answer to 90 committees, that in and of itself can cause you to spend a lot of what would otherwise be appropriations or intellectual capital that might be better purposed elsewhere, including some sort of long-term planning and lateral look in order to really address these huge issues here. But I wanted to talk to you because what I think gets the most play in terms of the public's awareness of the immigration issue is always the Southern border. And maybe because we sort of romance it, you know, we're a country that loves a Western. There's sort of the crag and the way it looks and the idea of these lonely agents riding on horseback and whatnot, trying to, you know, stop influx of immigrants who, for the most part, function very well once they get in here. Is it really the biggest problem, the southern border? It is not the biggest problem. It is the one that gets the most publicity right now. It is a big problem. Let me not you know, understate that. And, and one of the biggest problems is the increased movement of fentanyl along the southern border. When we first encountered fentanyl in this country, it was mostly coming from China, and now it's coming across our southwest border. And to me, that creates an even bigger problem for the southwest border. And we're starting to see more drugs come on the northern border, too. You can't say that that really is the biggest problem because when you look across the mission set, you know, DHS was created because of air security and plane security. That threat has not, it's evolved, but it has not gone away. You have an increase in natural disasters that FEMA needs to work with for the safety and health of people in our country and their well-being. You have CISA, the newest agency that handles cyber and infrastructure security. We know the threat against against our country from state actors in the cyber realm is a real threat, not only for cyber, but for our critical infrastructure. So it is an extreme risk to our country to not balance our focus across all these threats and only look at the Southwest border and especially even segregating the Southwest border even further and saying immigration. That is an interesting statement that you make, that the fentanyl threat is really it. And I I do know, I have a friend who recently rode on an airplane with a DEA agent who said, we had some leg up and we were able to do something to stop the fentanyl when it cost, I don't remember, $20 a pill. But now that it's two bucks, we're losing the battle. He was apparently very concerned. So that's disturbing. And I can understand the need for more presence at the border to prevent that from happening. But in reality, much of what comes into the United States that is contrary. Band comes in through tunnels 
and other means that are very difficult to detect and often through formal border crossings, sadly enough, where it's hidden in ways that are creative beyond anyone's imagination. Let's talk about what can be done. So can anything be done at these massive crossing sites to, let's say, vet individuals on the spot to determine whether they pose a national security threat, not just because they're in some intel file somewhere, but because there are other aspects of their personalities, their background that may suggest that they're really not here to live the American dream. This is an area where we've done some things, some movement forward. We always have more to do in this area. I would say the number one thing that we're, we're doing to help better vet individuals was the formation of the National Vetting Center. And that was really important and is still functioning because it combines classified and unclassified information. So it gives a better assessment of individuals. And it also is one of the first times we saw departments working together on info sharing, information sharing. And that's really important. I think that if this Southwest border crisis, if you want to call it that, has done anything. It's really driven better information sharing between the departments and really having a federal look at some of the missions across the federal space. There is increased work on biometrics. Biometrics is a gift and a danger. It's a gift because it's extremely helpful in vetting individuals. It's a danger because we have to be careful with civil rights and civil liberties and privacy as we do it, not only for persons that are non-citizens, but there's a lot of citizens that fall under this. So that is an area that's increasing carefully to account for privacy in CRCL, but needs to go even more. The other thing with vetting is technology. We have to be better about increasing our technology. We do have wonderful commercial partners that help us with detection technology. You mentioned tunnels. We've gotten much better at detecting tunnels but also everything from radar to scanners to different varieties of detection that we're going to need to protect our country. One thing you don't think of when it talks about vetting individuals is once they're in the country, and that's probably one of my biggest concerns because we don't have a plan, a long-term plan. We may talk about this later, but some of the research has shown that persons who don't assimilate into our country, that is a ripe, fertile ground for homegrown violent extremism. That is a real concern. It's a concern from the Homeland Security standpoint of, are we creating this non-taken care of group that is going to come to our country and be dissatisfied because we don't have a plan for them and that they're going to become increasingly uh, dissatisfied with their time in the United States. The second thing is from a humanitarian standpoint. If our policy and our politics and our people and our values say we should let these people in, then we need to find a way to assimilate them into our country with jobs, with communities, with the type of housing and education. And we don't have a plan for that right now. So both on the political homeland security aspect and on the, the humanitarian compassionate level, this is not a good thing. You know, that's an interesting insight because it, it is a problem in places like France, right, where immigrants are sort of consigned to these 
what are essentially projects many times, and they're really not allowed to work or work in certain jobs in France. And it sort of creates a permanent, you know, embittered underclass. And then I think there are individuals who just by the cut of their personalities, just struggle to assimilate almost anywhere outside of their home. And that, that can be obviously quite a challenge. That's an excellent point. Let's sort of expand on that a little bit. But taking the individual threat of any one person. Let's talk about sort of big meta issues that we're all looking at right now that are very difficult to deny. Does DHS really consider sort of the longer term impact of things like floods of immigrants coming into the country because of a war and how that might need to change an approach, a budget, what role they can play, or do appropriations always and the, the way DHS sort of manages immigration issues, are they determined in a moment of stasis that doesn't exist for us in reality? This is definitely way beyond a DHS issue. When DHS was formed, there was a Homeland Security Presidential Directive 5 that set up the department. It's key, and I think a lot of people need to reread that because that really sets the mission of DHS, and it's a coordination role. In addition, at the same time, we set up the National Response Framework, and these are two things that we need to go back to as we talk about the long-term impacts of the increase of immigrants in our country and how we deal with them. This problem requires many federal agencies. Health and Human Services is a big one. Department of Justice, Department of Transportation, Housing and Urban Development all have to be upfront and dealing with the different aspects of having people in our country. Department of Education for an increase of students that might not have English as their first language. And we're not thinking holistically like that, and that needs to be done. And I think that it's important to start going across our cabinet and using the cabinet and the National Council more effectively to look at all the pieces of, of this problem. Additionally, and this is something that DHS is working on a lot, is state, local, and not-for-profits. The federal government cannot do this alone. It must be in partnership with the state and local governments. And we're seeing more and more not-for-profits, including churches, really stepping forward and helping with refugees and immigrants in our country. And so I think we have to think of this as an ecosystem of resources towards this. It's going to take all of us to give these people the type of life that kind of warrants the values of our country. And also turns them into good Americans, ultimately. I mean, we have a low birth rate right now and so on. And good functioning Americans, just like all of our grandparents, are the backbone of the country. Let's talk for a second about some of these programs that have also gotten a lot of play I think really do tear at the heartstrings of, of a lot of Americans. And one of them is DACA. And then the second one is sort of this concept of temporary protected status. Talk about what roles those programs play. You know, I, I think right now, unfortunately, those two programs are playing a role to sensationalize and emotionalize some real issues that we should be talking about more rationally as Americans. DACA important. It's helping people that came here to our country with no fault of their own, and it needs to be dealt with. However, DACA is not a solution. DACA does not provide a path to citizenship for any of those 
persons covered by that. It also, in many people's opinion, circumvents law, the Immigration and Naturalization Act. And there's a couple sides to that. But we really have to start looking at, do we want people to be in this country forever and never have a path to citizenship? Do we want mothers and fathers that have U.S. citizen children that could be deported at any time because they're just DACA and can't do anything about it? And I don't think that's consistent with, with our values. So I think we have to stop resting on DACA and say, you know, this is great and say, this is not consistent with our values. And we have to do something if we want to keep that population in our country that's more permanent and, and has some type of path to citizenship. Similarly, with temporary protective status, that leads to nothing but bad stories. And this is where you hear those stories. This person's been in this country 17 years and they have, you know, never committed a crime. Why are we deporting Temporary protected status is not an immigration program. And many times those countries want their people back. And we really have to look at if we want to have people from countries that have recurring disasters that warrant temporary protective status, which is needed when those people are in the United States at the time of the disaster, they can't go back. So for instance, a hurricane in Haiti, something like that, that we're supposed to temporarily allow them to stay in our country. A lot of those TPS declarations have been going on 10, 20 years. And it's inconsistent with the meaning of that legislation. So if we want to say, for instance, Haiti, again, that there's so many recurring pandemics and disasters that it should be allow Haitians to stay there if they're here, then we need to change the law and account for that desire on, on our country's foundation. We have to get back, I think, to the rule of law. That's an excellent point. I mean, you look at a country that is has just been eviscerated like Haiti, and you just don't see how it'll be better in 10 years. That's an excellent point. Let's talk about sort of the history of uh, immigration policy. You know, everybody who is running for office seems to say that they're going to change immigration in one way or another. But has immigration policy changed in the last decade? And if so, how has it changed? It's changed for the worst. So it's changed in two ways. It's changed in extremes. We have not had a moderate approach to immigration reform since I think that the end of Bush, so 2008. And I think that's necessary. We are going from one extreme to the other, almost appealing to the right and left bases rather than dealing with the general population of the United States. And I think that as voters, we need to really engage and hold our, our lawmakers accountable. And, and related to that is policy is substituting now for statute. We have lost one of the fundamental principles of our country, and that is the separation of powers and the three branches of government. We are not getting statutes and the judicial system and the administration writing interim rule, interim final rules and writing executive orders are substituting for statutes and sometimes conflicting with it. I teach immigration to people going through the naturalization process and they have to learn about our country. And the way we created the balance of power through the three branches is it's epic. It's wonderful. And we need to get back to using it. And as voters, we need to hold our lawmakers accountable in both the executive and the congressional branches for, for moving us forward. Bipartisanship is necessary. 
Unquestionably. And these are difficult tasks. But, you know, when Congress has really been pushed in the past, they've done some amazing things. I don't feel like we're in that particular flavor of soup right now, (laughs) but it would be great if we were. Looking back on your years at DHS, because, you know, DHS was a really interesting formation and it was all these legacy agencies, as you've mentioned. But looking back on this and your understanding of the changes of immigration, U.S. immigration policies, do you see a clear path to changing the system? Well, from a Substance standpoint, a path has to include dealing with the past. It has to include a permanent remedy for DACA and other persons in this country. I know some people call that amnesty to make it unpalatable, but it is an amnesty. It's the result of choices our country made to have people in our country for 5, 10, 20, 30 years. And we cannot cut that and say, you have to go back now. It just seems un-American and it seems uncompassionate from from the perspective of the roots they've built here. I do think there could be some type of merit immigration related to that population to go through a naturalization process. It would have to be something we would make up. I don't, one doesn't exist. And so we have to deal with that existing population and it's getting bigger and bigger every day. And we have to agree on the future. And one of the things we need to do in the middle of the past and the future is today stop the backlog. So with the increase of persons crossing the border, we're looking at maybe five to seven years before you get your hearing, if you say crime credible fear for coming into the United States. And that just doesn't work. You can't have someone come in, build a life, and then in five to seven years be completing their initial kind of immigration. And I know with the recent interim final rule that was published, we're trying to get at that a little bit in our country, but that alone, that recent rule from May is not going to fix it without really looking at what do we agree on the future and what type of immigration we want in our country. But without fixing the present and the past. It'll not go. And I think we should get ready, and this might sound like good enough for government, we should be prepared to take immigration reform that's an 80% solution. Because I can tell you what we have now does not work. No president can make an effective immigration system under the current kind of conglomeration of statute judicial decisions and executive actions. And so we need to get far enough with the most important areas, and then we can tweak it later. That all makes sense. Elaine, thank you so much for talking to us tonight. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And uh, thank you for bringing light to this important topic. Our guest tonight has been Elaine Duke, former Deputy Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security and former Acting Secretary of Homeland Security. Thanks for tuning in to NSLT. Be sure to share this episode with a friend and like and subscribe and rate us if you can on your listening app of choice. We're here to help you reclaim your attention span so that you listen to our long form podcasts, which are intended to bring you real law, real topics, and not sound bites or clickbait. Send us comments and feedback. You can find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC, or you can send us an email at national security at AmericanBar.org. NSLT is written by me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. 
and it's produced by the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salito is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another Point of View. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.